0: Let's go ahead and open our Bibles this morning to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we'll continue worshiping the Lord as we open his word. We'll read the text and then we'll pray together. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. James writes Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Heavenly Father, give us understanding today. I pray that this text, which has caused uh, questions and for so many and can perhaps cause confusion, I pray that today, by your Spirit, You would lead us deeper into truth. You would give us clarity and understanding and that you would convince us of how you want us to trust and obey in response to this text. Lord, do your work now in your people, by your spirit and through the ministry of your word. We come to you expectantly trusting that you will accomplish all your purpose. And we pray that you would receive all the glory for what happens this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Prayer is probably the most basic expression of faith. Prayer is how we look to God. It's how we acknowledge Him. It's how we express our dependency on Him. It's how we show that we trust Him. And and when we read Scripture, that's like the inhaling of faith, trusting that God will speak to us. But prayer is the exhale of faith, it's looking to the Lord. And trust and dependency. And here James teaches us that we should respond to every circumstance in life, every situation in prayer. Now, if church tradition is correct, then this message that prayer is to be the response of faith in every situation, that's something that James didn't just preach, it's something he also practiced. Uh, tradition holds that he had a nickname of being called camel knees i don 't know if you 've ever been called camel knees, but you know camels often kneel down in order to have a burden or a rider placed upon them and then stand up so they 're frequently on their knees and it 's said that James was so frequently on his knees on the stone pavement of the temple in prayer that he developed these big calluses on his knees so old camel knees has a message for us today. Um, something again that story comes from Eusebius the the historian. Um, this is something that James knew from personal firsthand experience. The reason that James prayed so faithfully is because James, this church leader, the half-brother of Jesus, was a man who possessed genuine faith. Now faith, if you've been with us in our study through James, has really been the theme of this book. It's been the backbone of James's message, and he's always eager to show us that faith is always to be active. Faith is is to be demonstrated. Faith should shape our responses. It should control our actions. It's to produce good works. And so naturally, James's teaching on prayer is something that calls us to action. James is not just prescribing a mindless ritual. He's not teaching us to have some sort of mystical contemplation here. This is the active expression of conscious, intentional, patient faith. Looking to the Lord, depending on Him, waiting on Him. Before we jump into the text this morning, um, we need to admit that this is probably the most difficult passage to interpret in the book of James. And there's a potential here for us to get a little bit distracted and side, sidetracked by some of the questions that, that this text raises. And if we do that, we may fail to miss the main point. Um, One of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, always says this about Scripture, that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And the main thing, the plain thing in this text is that, and it's obvious, it's that in all of life we should respond in prayer with a God-centered perspective, a God-centered trust. So what I want to do this morning is address some of those questions, but especially to look at four prayerful responses to the circumstances of life. So firstly James tells us in verse 13 that prayer or that faith rather responds to suffering with petition. That's a certain kind of prayer. Faith responds to suffering with petition. He says, "Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray." Now James knows that these people are indeed suffering. They are according to chapter 1, the dispersion. They've been scattered across the Roman Empire by persecution. And James has been calling them to find joy in their trials. Remember, back in chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter these various trials. He assured them in chapter 1, verse 12, that enduring to the end through their trials in the face of this suffering, that it is indeed worth it. Blessed are those, James writes, who remain steadfast in the face of trial. For when you've stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Chapter 5 points out, apparently, that they've even suffered oppression and injustice at the hands of the rich, even murder. So these people are suffering. Now, when we suffer, there's many different ways that we might respond. Despair, frustration, um, complaining, and self-pity. There's a lot of different ways that people respond when suffering happens. But what does it look like to respond to suffering in faith? Well, God's word of instruction to these suffering believers in their suffering is simple, and it's one word, pray, pray. In the original language that this text was written in, it's one word. Is anyone among you suffering? Pray, pray. Such prayer in time of suffering is the expression of faith. It's the belief that, first of all, God is there. As Psalm 11, verse 4 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He's there. And so we ought to pray. Prayer is the expression of faith that God is not only there, but that God hears. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Prayer in a time of suffering expresses faith that God cares. Psalm 145 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And prayer is the expression of faith that God answers. Psalm 86 verse 7 says, In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. Faith expresses itself in times of suffering by praying. It shows we believe God is there, that he hears, that he cares, and that he answers. So what are we to pray for, you ask? Well, James doesn't exactly say, but if we just think about this, you know, typically we are quick to ask for deliverance, aren't we? God, I'm suffering. I'm experiencing a trial. This is painful. Please remove this situation. Please get me out of here. We ask for relief for the removal of whatever circumstances are causing us our pain or our distress. But here's the thing, and you know this if you've lived any amount of time as a Christian, prayer may not change the circumstances that we face. God may hear our prayers and may bring us relief by removing the source of our suffering. He does that at times. Or he may indeed hear our prayers but choose to supply the grace to endure our trials rather than removing the source of our suffering. God does this not because he doesn't care, but because he uses suffering. He uses trials to sanctify us. Again, James already told us that God uses difficulties to accomplish this purpose. That's chapter one, verse two. And so we can count it all joy, even when God doesn't get us out of the trials because we know what God is doing in and through our suffering. The life of faith involves and requires for all of us enduring the test, standing firm in the face even of suffering. But knowing that God wills for us to face a trial, if you come to that conclusion, that doesn't mean that we're just supposed to resign ourselves to suffer in silence, to say, oh, well, I guess this is what God has. No, this isn't some stoic reaction to suffering. James calls us to pray. We pray for grace. We pray for strength. We pray for God's will to be done. We pray for our faith to be made strong. We pray in the face of suffering as an expression that our trust is in God and that we know we need him in order to stand firm in the face of the test. We endure by praying and we endure in praying. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19 puts it this way. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says that if you face suffering and trials, we trust God. We look to him even as we keep obeying and doing what he's called us to do. If we respond to suffering with prayerlessness, if we stop praying, that shows one of two things. Either we don't believe that God is there and that he's powerful and that he's good and that he can help us, or it reveals some sort of unbelieving self-reliance. Those of you who are parents may have had a two-year-old before who throws sort of a frustrated fit and says, I can do it by myself. When we refuse to pray to God and we think we can handle it, that's probably what we look like. But James tells us if we're going to endure and if we're going to find help and even escape from suffering, we need to look to God. We need his help, plain and simple. So we ask God to rescue us, yes, to deliver us from suffering, but we also ask him to sustain us, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our resolve so that we can patiently endure. So James says, are you suffering? Pray, pray. Secondly, faith not only responds to suffering with petition, but faith also responds to blessing with praise. Faith responds to blessing with praise. He says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I'm so thankful that by God's grace, even though life is sometimes hard, and although life is sometimes filled with painful trials and deep valleys, there are seasons of joy and happiness that God blesses us with as well. There are times when we taste and see that the Lord is good. And in such times, James says, we are to sing praise. The word here for sing praise is the same word we get the word psalms from. A psalm is a song of praise directed to God. Much of the psalms, as you read them, are not God speaking to us, but it's giving us words to speak to God. And in the psalms, we find a rich pattern of praise. Psalm seventy-one twenty-three says, My lips will shout for joy. When I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. James says that joy should turn our hearts upward in praise. He told us in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from our Father. They're good gifts of God. And this praise that James calls us to is really a form of prayer. It's a form of prayer that's not asking God for something, but rather a form of prayer that is thanking God for everything He's already done, everything He's already provided. Praise is our prayerful expression of joy and gratitude for all of God's provision, all of his protection, all of his blessings. I love Psalm 103, David writes, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, "'and all that is within me, bless his holy name. "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, "'and forget not all his benefits, "'who forgives all your iniquity, "'who heals all your diseases.'" who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our joy, our happiness is the direct result of God's goodness to us, his blessing. Therefore, our prayers should be filled not just with asking God for more, but with praise, blessing him for his rich grace towards us. You know, in times of grief and hardship, I think it's easier for us to pray. Uh, It's times like that that often force us to our knees, and rightly so, because we can do little else. But what about the times of plenty? Think about your life. Do you respond in prayer when you're happy, when you're overwhelmed with joy? As we grow in our faith, a response of prayer, I think, will increasingly become our impulse, when we enjoy the many benefits of God's grace. That's gonna be the sanctified instincts of a mature believer, to pray and bless God and thank him and praise him for all of his undeserved goodness to us. So James says, are you cheerful today? Pray, pray, praise God for his goodness. James gives us a fourth kind of situation though. Third, faith responds to sickness by requesting intercession, Faith responds to sickness by requesting intercession. Look in verses 14 and 15. He says, "'Is anyone among you sick? "'Let him call for the elders of the church, "'and let them pray over him, "'anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. "'And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, "'and the Lord will raise him up. "'And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven.'" James now addresses a third category of people or a third kind of experience that all of us face at one time or another. Those who are suffering, but suffering specifically because of some sort of physical illness. You know, there's nothing that makes us feel quite so helpless and quite so weak and vulnerable as physical illness. Sickness reminds us that we lack the resources, we we lack the power, we lack the wisdom to sustain ourselves. We're weak. We're vulnerable. Even the doctors can't always figure out what's wrong and they can't always fix it. So once again, in such circumstances, the response of faith is to look first and foremost to God, to look to him as the healer and to ask him to show himself, to show his power on our behalf. We believe that God is sovereign, that he rules over every atom and every molecule of his creation. That includes our physical bodies. So we pray to God and ask for healing because we believe that he is able to heal and that he does hear such prayers and can and will answer such prayers. Whether God answers those prayers by direct divine intervention, overruling the, the natural course of nature, or whether God provides healing through his providential guidance of doctors and the common grace of modern medicine. In either case, God is the source of all healing. So when we're sick, we are to pray. But notice here that James is now bringing in the church. He brings in the church. He says, is anyone among you sick? He says, let him call for the elders of the church. But what James wants to teach us here is that prayer is not just the work of the individual in private although it is indeed that and must and must not be less but prayer is also to be the work of the body the work of the church we pray alone and we pray together james tells the sick person to seek the intercession the prayers of others on their behalf to seek the intercession of the elders. Those are the the leaders of the church, the pastors, the overseers. There's sort of three different words that Scripture uses to describe such leaders. Elder, which refers to sort of the maturity and and authority aspect of of pastoral ministry. Um, Shepherds, which is pastoral, feeding and guiding. And then overseers, um, which has to do with organizational authority in the church. These are just three different terms that refer to those that God has appointed to lead in the church, those who meet those qualifications we find in in the letters to Titus and Timothy. So if you're sick, James says, call for the elders, ask them to come and pray. There's several things that stand out to me as we see this instruction, and I think they're, they're practically helpful to us. First of all, James here assumes that the sick believer is part of the church, not just the universal church, but a local, physical church, and that he knows who his pastors are. He knows who his elders are because you can't call for your elders if you don't have any. You can't call your elders if you don't know who they are and if they don't know who you are. Our Christian experience, even in physical trials, is supposed to take place in the context of a local spiritual community, the church. The church. The church. We're not called to suffer through our trials alone, with no help, with no encouragement from the body. Rather, James says, we stand to benefit from the blessing of being part of a church community that is centered on Christ and His gospel. This instruction goes directly against the grain in our radically individualistic culture. Sadly, there are some who keep the church at arm's length, they don't join a local church. They don't connect with other local believers underneath a, the, the authority of a local church. They may even attend a church sometimes and hear a sermon and sing some songs, but there's no connection to the body and to its leadership. But the kind of intimate care that this text implies is something that, that has to happen in the context of the lo- local church, but some of you shy away from that. James, though, assumes that if you are a believer in Christ, if you have genuine faith, that you'll be part of your local church. And the leaders of the local church will have a significant function in your life. James anticipates that people will go through the deepest waters with the help of the body, not going through it alone. The second observation on this instruction is that we notice here the sick person is the one who's responsible to take initiative here. It's comforting to me as a pastor that no elders are condemned here for failing to read anyone's mind, knowing that they need prayer, knowing that they want them to come. Um, To get really practical here, let me just say this. You can make your pastor's job much easier by simply communicating. I do truly want to know, if you're a member of this church, how I can minister to you, how I can care for you, how I can pray for you. So if you're suffering through illness, James instructs you to call for the leaders of the church and ask for intercessory prayer. So that much is simple and straightforward, but there's another element in verse 14 that raises some questions for us. He says in verse 14, "Is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of church and let them pray over him, okay, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord." So what's the significance here of anointing with oil in this context? Well, we always want to use Scripture to help us interpret Scripture. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, Jesus sent out his disciples on a mission, and they anointed with oil and healed the sick. But that's really the only other passage where healing and oil are paired together. And because that passage is similar to our passage today, um, I want to compare those. And what's, what's um, similar about these texts is that there's no explanation in Mark either of what sort of purpose that oil served. So I think it's wise for us to be cautious in our interpretation here because there's not a lot of scriptures that speak directly to what exactly the oil is for or what exactly its significance is. So what does it mean? Well, there's a couple options. It's possible that this oil was was intended to be used in a medicinal sense. It was supposed to give comfort for their physical needs. We have the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 who cared for a man who'd been beaten viciously and robbed and left for dead on the road. And we know that the good Samaritan took wine and oil and used those things to treat the man's wounds. So it's possible here that the anointing with oil is simply being used in a physical sense for medicinal purposes. Um, there were not hospitals and doctors in the same sense in that day that we have today. And it's possible that those who were being persecuted were somewhat blacklisted in the community So perhaps these elders were simply rendering physical care by anointing with oil. That's one uh, potential meaning here. But there's also the potential um, that this oil is intended to be symbolic of God's blessing, symbolic of God's care for us. In Psalm 23, uh, it, it speaks of the Lord being our shepherd. And it says that he anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. And it's symbolic here of blessing upon God's people. So if the shepherds of the church, physically in the local church, are intended to be representatives of the great shepherd, the true shepherd, it's possible that this is a sort of way of extending God's care to his sheep. So perhaps it's, it's physical, medicinal, perhaps it was more symbolic, perhaps it's a combination of both, uh, but here are some things that we can be certain of as we look at this text. We know for certain that the emphasis in this text is not on the oil. The emphasis is on prayer. Prayer is mentioned in every verse of this passage. And it is James' dominant focus. Even grammatically, pray here in this verse is the main verb. And and the verb for anointing them with oil is dependent on that main command of prayer. Even grammatically, we see it's dependent there. So the anointing with oil is a secondary act to the primary issue of prayer. And this would have happened either during the praying or immediately before the main task of praying. So again, don't lose lose, um, track of the main focus. The main thing here is to pray for those who are sick, to request others to come and pray with you and pray for you. Um, In addition, we know that the power here, the power is in prayer, not in the oil and also not in the elder. Those who are leaders in the church do not have some sort of superpower when it comes to prayer. We are not priests who have special access to God. All are welcomed and invited to come boldly into the throne of grace, Hebrews says, to ask for help in a time of need, to ask for grace. So prayer is the work of all Christians. Prayer is not just the work of some supposedly elite spiritual class of elders. Um, In addition, we, we know in terms of the oil not being the thing that's bringing healing, We know that many people were healed in the New Testament without the use of oil. So the oil isn't the main thing. The elders aren't the main thing. Prayer is the main thing. Again, that's the central point, to pray and to ask others to come and pray with you and pray for you, to pray over you. So prayer is the key. But as we continue on into verse 15, some of your questions probably get even more difficult. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So we look at this first statement, the prayer of faith, the prayer of faith, it will save the one who is sick. So how are we to understand this? Is this a guarantee of immediate healing? No, no, that's not what this verse is teaching. Scripture elsewhere shows that God doesn't always will, He doesn't always plan and, and perform um, healing for all of His children. We know, for example, Paul had his thorn in the flesh, and he prayed on three separate occasions for God to remove it, and God said no. He preferred rather to have His glory shown in and through Paul's weakness. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10, through 10, the text where we find that, That story recounted for us. The word that Paul uses there of to be content in his weakness because God said no, that's the same word that's translated sickness here in this text. And sometimes God desires for us to be content with that and to experience his grace, and he doesn't heal. Also, it doesn't mean that if someone was not healed that they didn't have enough faith. Perhaps someone has said that to you before. I know for even in my own wife's experience in the last couple years, Uh, there was one individual who approached my wife and said, the reason you're having all these issues is because you need to pray and you need to have faith, implying that she hadn't prayed and that she didn't have enough faith. But that's not what James is teaching here. What makes prayer so powerful is not the strength of the person offering it. What makes prayer so powerful is the strength of the one who receives prayer. God. God is the, the key. Again, we would not accuse Paul, someone who authored half of the New Testament, and on one occasion even raised someone from the dead. We would never accuse Paul of not having enough faith because his thorn wasn't removed. If, Paul did ha- if, it was- if that was the case, then Paul's thorn would have been removed, and Paul would have never had any sick friends. But we know on one occasion that Paul was forced to leave Trophimus, one of his co-workers in the ministry, at Miletus, 2 Timothy 4. Why? Because he was ill. He couldn't continue on with Paul. In addition, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Epaphroditus was sick almost to the point of death. And and Paul was was concerned for him, and so were the Philippians. It's hard to imagine that Paul and that others who were strong in faith didn't pray for these brothers, but apparently God did not immediately heal them. So again, as we bring Scripture to shine light on Scripture, James is not telling us that if you have enough faith and you pray, you are guaranteed to experience healing in an immediate sense. So if it doesn't mean that, then what does this text mean? Well, we could kind of get deep into the weeds here. There's a few different options and different ways we could interpret it. But I think we need to acknowledge that James likely has in view here more than simply the temporal healing of the body. I think that James has in view, as he always does, the big picture and the end of God's plan and the renewal of all things and the resurrection that is to come. I think James is talking about the eternal healing that comes through Christ, the healing of the soul and the healing that is forever enjoyed in the resurrection. This is a prayer in that sense, not just for immediate healing, but for salvation. If we take the prayer of faith, looking to God and see the results of being raised up and forgiveness of sins, I think James is referring to our salvation. And if we take it that way, here's how to read the text. James is saying, you know what? Have the elders come and pray for you. That's great. But it's even better to pray to the Lord for salvation. Because if you know you have salvation in Christ, then you are ready for death. You're ready to face your maker. And you know that resurrection is coming. And that is far more important than temporal healing final healing, and resurrection will come in the new heavens and the new earth. So whether or not you experience temporal healing in this life, believers know that this is our hope for the future. So call the elders and pray and anoint with oil. Do everything in your power, medicinally and spiritually. That is good, but especially make sure that you are right with God. Pray to him in faith and know that his salvation is guaranteed. Taking it in this way shows that God is concerned for his children, not just for our physical needs, but also for our spiritual needs. And he invites us to pray for healing. But we're reminded here that God extends his grace to meet our deepest needs. You know, Jesus, when we look in the Gospels, he often healed people who were physically sick. Why did he do that? Well, Jesus did so to show his power, that he was truly the son of God, and to reveal his compassion, to display his love. But he also performed those miracles to symbolize what it was that he came to do, to heal us of our inner condition, that virus that we are infected with that was passed down from Adam, our sin. Jesus came to cleanse us, to forgive us of sin. So when we look to God In all circumstances, we are to pray. We pray when we suffer, we pray when we are cheerful, we pray when we are sick, and we pray with the hope that God is able to heal and may do so, but also with the confidence that perfect, ultimate healing will come one day because we have faith in Christ and his saving power. But there's a fourth response that James calls for. We find this in verse 16. Faith responds to sin with personal confession and mutual intercession. Faith responds to sin with personal confession and mutual intercession. James writes in verse 16, as those, as those who know we are sinners and as those who, who know we need Christ's forgiveness, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. On the heels of assuring us that God forgives, James urges us to confess our sin not only to God, but also to each other. Just as sickness impacts the health of our physical bodies, sin affects the health of the body of Christ, the church. And when one member suffers or struggles, we know the whole body struggles and suffers. So we are to enlist the help of our brothers and sisters in seeking to overcome sin and temptation. So corporate intercession, praying for one another, and corporate confession, and even corporate forgiveness are necessary for the health of the body, the health of the church. James here links confession with forgiveness, and we may ask, why? Why is it? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, James wants to make sure that we're not the double-minded man, that we're not Continuing in sin and then asking for God's blessings and grace, um, we know from chapter one that the double-minded man is not to expect to receive anything from the Lord. And although we want to be careful to press this point too far, it is possible that God may use sickness to discipline His children. So we need to to deal with sin. We need to deal with sin. Um, so that's that's part of what's going on. Um, Remember, God may use sickness as gracious discipline, and unconfessed sin reveals double-mindedness and unbelief, not faith. Um, so that's partly, I think, why James is, is speaking to this. Um, and in addition, I think we need to clarify, you know, what, why does James want us to confess to one another? You know, I think that it's sometimes popular in our day and age to confess sin to other people in sort of a therapeutic sense. Maybe it helps you feel better to get something off your chest. But I think James is calling us to confess because confessing to one another helps us to defeat our sin. It's a way to deal a death blow to our pride and our self-righteousness. And it helps us to enlist the aid of others. When we confess our sin to one another, they are able to encourage us. They are able to hold us accountable and they're able to pray for us to specifically have victory over those sins. So confession helps us to bring our sin into the light so that God can deal with it and purify us. Confession is a weapon in our warfare. And we have allies around us that we can enlist to help us to defeat our sin. Again, James wants to teach us that prayer is something that we do alone, but it's also something we do with others. And one of the things we ought to be praying about together is victory over our sin. We ought to be praying for increased holiness, praying for increased resistance to temptation. So if we're going to pray according to God's will, then such prayer will include confession of sin and praying for one another, praying for each other's struggles against sin. I think James. that's why James is encouraging us here. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then we get to the last part of verse 16, which basically sums up this entire section. Here's James's main point. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is something we can take to the bank. This is something to be believed and something that should be demonstrated as we pray. We believe this is true. So whether you're suffering or rejoicing or sick or struggling with sin, whatever your situation may be, James says, pray pray. If all of this seems unbelievable to you that prayer really does have power, that prayer can really make a difference if you're struggling with suffering or sickness or sin, well, James gives us a good example from the Old Testament, from the story of Elijah. He recounts the story of Elijah shortly after his confrontation with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings. Um, We know that Elijah, surrounding that whole story, had, had prayed for rain and God answered. And James reminds us of that. He says, Elijah, verse 17, was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. If you remember, King Ahab was not very pleased about that. He tried to blame Elijah for troubling all of Israel. But what happened after that conflict with the prophets of Baal? Verse 18, it says, then the end of that three years and six months, he prayed again. And heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. This is a great example. And James reminds us of Elijah's prayer. And he says, Listen, Elijah was a man just like us. He was a prophet, yes, but nothing more. Flesh and blood, beset with his own weaknesses, but he prayed. And he's an example of this prayer to God. And we know from that story that God heard his prayer and God answers his prayer. And this story is meant to encourage our faith and to set a precedent. Like Elijah, we too ought to pray, to pray even for big things and to pray in confidence that God is there and that God hears and that God cares and that God answers prayer. You know, we're all going through different things today. We're all in different situations. Some of you may be suffering today. Some of you may be cheerful and excited, full of joy. Some of you perhaps are sick, even dealing with chronic illness or disease. All of us today, as we read this text, are sinners and deal with besetting sins. Is prayer your daily response of faith to all of these various circumstances and others that we haven't listed? Are your prayers filled with petition, asking God to work on your behalf? Are your prayers filled with intercession, praying for others in the body of Christ, Are your prayers filled with praise, thanking God and blessing him for his goodness to you? Are your prayers marked by confession, confessing your sin before the Lord? If we desire God's glory in all things, if we have genuine faith, then we will pray, knowing that God may choose to maximize his glory by healing us and by rescuing us from suffering. But we pray like Jesus for his will to be done first and foremost knowing that God may choose to be glorified, not by removing the source of our, of our difficulty, but by giving us the grace to endure. So if we want his glory, then we will pray for his will. We will confess our sins, <clears throat> and we will pray in faith for ourselves and for one another to become more like Christ and to bring honor to him and to endure in our faith. Again, the good news of the gospel gives us comfort today, doesn't it? The good news of the gospel is that God is not only able to heal and rescue from the physical challenges that we face, but God is also able to redeem our souls from sin and from the eternal death of hell. He is able to raise us up imperishable in glorified bodies to share in his inheritance with Christ forever. Friend, if you're listening to this today and you don't know Jesus Christ, and perhaps you're facing financial hardship or physical suffering, dealing with sin, let me encourage you, before you pray about any of those challenges, you need to first and foremost bow the knee to Christ and pray to him a prayer of repentance, acknowledging your rebellion against God, acknowledging the depth of your depravity and your sin and your wickedness, and you need to confess your sin to God and pray in faith for Christ to remove your sin from you and to make your heart new, to make you alive, to save you from the wrath that is to come. That's the prayer that God calls you to pray today. Don't get distracted by all the other things. Don't bargain with God and say, Lord, if you'll only get me out of this jam, if you'll only heal this hurt, then I'll be a better person and I'll start going to church more or I'll give more money. No, pray that prayer of repentance today confess your sin and entrust your soul and your eternity to Christ so that you can have the hope with us of eternal joy in the resurrection. May we all today anticipate that reality and may we long for and pray for Christ's kingdom to come and let the daily exhaling of our faith be prayer in whatever circumstances we face, anything, the good, the bad, the hard, Let's respond with faith-filled prayer to our God in heaven. Let's pray now together. God, your word calls us to pray. It would be very easy as a pastor to guilt trip every single person who's listening because none of us prays as we ought. None of us prays enough. None of us prays sincerely enough. And Lord, it is difficult to read this text and not feel the sting of your gracious rebuke that too often we turn to our own wisdom, we turn to the world, we rely on our own strength, we forget you. Too often we are like those lepers who were healed, who then run off in joy and forget to say thank you. Thank you for your mercy and grace and your blessing toward us. Lord, I confess my sin of prayerlessness, and I know many who are praying now in spirit with me also. We come together, Lord, now and confess that we do not pray as we ought. Lord, I'm thankful that you don't love us because of how good we are at praying. You love us because you're a gracious, sovereign God who has chosen to rescue imperfect, sinful, needy people like us. And I thank you, God, that though we often do not pray as we should, yet Despite that, when we come to you in faith, when we come to you on the basis of Christ's work, when we come to you in his name, we can enter into your very throne room and ask you for help, ask you for grace, and you will hear us, and you will respond to us. Lord, increase our faith, and I pray that the evidence of our increased faith would be an increase of prayer, that we would respond to every situation by speaking to you, our Heavenly Father, Lord, make us a praying church, a praying people. Might we pray in secret when no one's around? Might we be quick to pray together as a church, to pray for one another and with one another? Lord, I pray that the, as faith unites with faith and prayer, that you would help us um, to glorify you by obeying the commands of this text. And again, we thank you, God, that no matter what happens here in this life, no matter sickness or suffering, We know that you will raise us up on the last day and that despite our sins, we'll be forgiven and perfectly and eternally healed. We thank you for that grace and that hope. And we pray all this humbly and in Christ's name, amen.